Patris et Fili et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in ora mortis nostre. Amen. Nomine Patris et Fili et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Brethren in Christ, laudetur Jesus Christus. This is Timothy Thank Flanders you. with the meaning of Catholic. I'm joined today by my friend and fellow counter-revolutionary, Peter Gimley of Vonday Radio. Peter, how you doing, brother? It's very good to be back on Meaning of Catholic. I think uh, our collaborations are becoming more and more fruitful. And um, I'm noticing more and more that uh, various Catholics are mentioning Vonday Radio and Meaning of Catholic together as, uh, as Catholic channels that they value. So we must be doing something right. Good. Well, Jesus is king. Very happy. Uh, yes, the um, Vonday Radio, if, if viewers don't know about Vonday Radio, um, probably one of my favorite channels to listen to. Uh, a lot of great interviews already uploaded. And uh, it, what any plans in the future, Peter, to uh, any new plans, new shows, interviews that you're planning on? Yes, well, in, in uh, relation, I think most uh, opposite to our conversation today, about the English soul. I've recorded a broadcast with Dr. Alan Fimister, who is very, very knowledgeable uh, about Catholic history on the history of Catholic England. I originally planned for a one hour broadcast on um, all 2000 years or nearly 2000 years of, of, uh, of Catholic history in England. Um, but we, we got up to about 1066 after I think two hours. So that will be followed by subsequent broadcasts um, for for the next periods of Catholic history that we're going to cover. So I think that might be of most interest. Well, that'd listen. be great. Yes, uh, I, I I saw Dr. Femister on Census Fidelium, and he certainly has the uh, traps to take a take take that into a ten hour lecture. So uh, very much appreciate his work, Dr. Femister. Um, so today's topic is the English soul. Um, I'm not sure. We haven't even thought of a title yet, but the English soul, the primordial light of the English people, the poisoning of the English people and the poisoning of the soul. This is a mutual topic of great mutual interest to Peter and myself, because um, obviously Peter is an Englishman in London and I, as an American, I have become more and more convinced in researching my most recent book of the importance of the church to face the influence of the Anglo and American empires, their influence on the church and society uh, in all sorts of ways, economically, spiritually, uh, psychologically, uh, politically, of course, all sorts of different ways. And so we're going to try to dig deeper into the origins of Anglo culture, English culture, some of what that is, what it is not, some of the history. And so we're going to talk about that today. And the first aspect of that is the concept of the primordial light, uh, or put another way, a sort of the ethnic temperament. This is something I've mentioned on uh, a previous podcast about how 
the Jews or Israel were chosen by God because they had a particular ethnic temperament or different ethnic temperaments we can observe just sort of by natural law. Um, and this is a concept that uh, Plinio de Correa brings up that you brought up to me, Peter. So can you first give us an idea of what that is and explain that? I think that some might, that might come across as sort of Gnostic to some, I think, when we talk about something like the primordial light of, of nations. So tell us more about that concept. Yes. Um, so I think um, various Catholic uh, thinkers have commented on how Christianity has, or, or the Catholic thought, let's say, has become more and more distant from Platonic realism or ultra realism. Um, so the, the, the case that I'm going to put forward um, is a poetic case. It is a, a spiritual case. Um, it might seem es esoteric, but I would, I would say that this is very much in keeping with um, the biblical understanding of nations. Um, and it may be slightly, slightly speculative as well, um, but that doesn't mean that I don't think it's true. Um, I think that I sort of hope to really uh, transmit the, the thought of um, various esteemed Catholic, uh, Catholic thinkers in this regard. Um, so, for example, Maisie Ward, who um, viewers should be familiar with as a very famous uh, Catholic publisher of the last century, um, published a book called The English Way. Studies in English Sanctity from Bede to Newman. I have the, the book here. And um, in that introduction, she says that uh, Christianity is universal. It is in every country. But because it is sacramental, it is, it is intensely local, found in each country in a special and unique fashion. So if we think of the of, of sacred scriptures, the the nations of the bible have specific temperaments they are given personal pronouns first of all and they're often personified in monarchs for example caesar uh, or cyrus the great or pharaoh and then um, we have the the tradition of the nations having guardian angels um, for example um, one interpretation of uh, Daniel 10 is that the, um, the prince of Persia refers to the guardian angel of Persia um, and that the guardian angel of Israel was St. Michael. So I think Dr. Plinio Cred Oliveira sort of stands in this tradition when he talks about the primordial light of the soul. That's just his articulation of a notion of a, a way of understanding um, national personality, as it were. Um, in, a, in that was his particular way of, of uh, conceiving of it. Um, so he, he attempted to just sort of define the different vocations in, his, in one particular essay of the European nations regarding their fidelity to grace and true love of God. So the primordial light, I think best can be compared to personality. So what is personality? It's, it's a very mysterious thing. Um, but my definition is that it is the unique nature, the unique sum, as it were, of a person's character, their virtues, their talents. We're all given 
um, specific talents. They're qualities that are endowed by God when we are created. Um, and he desires that we perfect those uh, gifts to reflect as a finite being some aspect of himself as the infinite being. So each of us is, is limited um, and God is unlimited. So uh, he distributed, shall we say, his talents among uh, the, the, the people, among people uh, and likewise among nations to reflect some aspect of himself. And an uh, analogy to think of this is of um, the beautiful stained glass in a Gothic cathedral. So God's light is shining all around, but it's given a different color, a different accent, a different play by those different panes of glass. Um, and in a sense, that's our vocation as Christians, as living a life of grace, is to perfect our particular stain of glass in order to, uh, to reflect God's glory. That's, that's beautiful. I, I'm thinking of the um, Deuteronomy 7 and 8, which is where it says, um, not because you surpass all nations in number is the Lord joined unto you, O Israel, but because the Lord hath loved you. And so there's sort of an implied personality there, I think. Exactly. Um, and in the endless genealogies of Genesis, we have these, these nations, which are, uh, as you said, personified by monarchs, and they're also personified by their patriarch. And so the, the, the very first father of a whole people, like Egypt is a, actually a person first in Genesis, and then it becomes a nation. So Egypt is a person, a son of Ham, and Egypt as a person has a personality, and that personality gets sort of passed down through his descendants in a certain temperament and creates a nation with a particular temperament. Um, so tell us about the English temperament. What is the English temperament? Tell us about some of this history that you've um, been thinking about and studying. Yes, yeah, so this um, what I'm going to present is the fruit of reflections and study. Um, just one last thing I'd add on on the primordial light is that we're within this modern world. People conceive of the nation as a machine as a result of Enlightenment rationalist um, thought and epistemology but that was never how the church and medieval thinkers thought of nations they thought of the nations as a as a people and and as a as a kind of body and therefore as a body possessing a personality in a certain sense um so chesterton sort of very much um continued this tradition when he said that king alfred the great was quote supremely the type that proves to the world what is called a fanatical fixity of faith without fanaticism, in which solitary and supernatural conviction expresses itself in energy, but not often in ecstasy. There is always something about him indescribably humble and handy, like one who unpretentiously hammers away at an inherited task. And then uh, his great mentor, Belloc, wrote, quote, what we call England was made, grew from, began upon a Sussex hill in 1066. Not that the blood which we call English began then, and not the landscape, nor the deep things which inhabit the native soul. All these are immemorial. 
the English imagination, the English humour, the English Englishry is from the beginning of recorded time. So when I talk about the primordial soul, I'm talking about, to use Belloc's phrase, those deep things which inhabit the native soul. They make in each land its own special way of being Catholic. And as you say, the English soul has influenced the, the American character as, as America is uh, a mosaic of, of European peoples. Um, so I thought perhaps to start with, we could just, um, we could just go through Dr. Plinio's description of the, the English primordial light. Would you, would you like me to read that? Yes, certainly. Like read that? Yes, certainly. Yeah, so this is from an essay where he, he goes through the, the primordial lights of the different European nations. Um, so I think this is a, a very good sort of overture to um, further reflections on the English soul. This is what he writes. With the English, we find something similar to what happened with the Prussian people. Both people were so deeply changed by heresy that it becomes difficult to reconstitute what they would have been had they been faithful. What is the bad side of England? England has a commercial, Masonic, cold and frustrated spirit. There is much emptiness and frustration in the English spirit. With Anglicanism, the magnificent cathedrals of old become emptied of life and grace. They are doubtless still very distinguished, but they lack life. They're elevated, but they are as dry as an umbrella stick. Most of the simple churches in Rome have more life than the magnificent Westminster Abbey. If you look at a picture of Churchill or Edward VIII when they were young, you still see in them a springtime spirit. But when you compare these pictures with the old Churchill or the Edward VIII married with Wallace Simpson, there is an immense change. Both men are so saturated with the Masonic spirit that all the promises of youth were raised to the ground. What is the English vocation? I would say that England was called to realize something of an angelic innocence. In the English soul, there is something so honest and serene that it obliged Protestantism to assume a Catholic overgarment, Anglicanism, otherwise it would not have been swallowed by the people. Something that still reflects the good side of the English soul is the English landscapes. In them, it is rare to find an astonishingly beautiful panorama, but all of the English landscapes are filled with charming little gardens and corner spots that are called to be appreciated separately. In those ambiences, there is such freshness and such richness that only very innocent souls, almost angelic souls, know how to admire them properly. Here is a bridge with a cluster of ducks swimming under it. Over there is a mossy stone in the water with small blue flowers. Further down the way, an ivy climbing a wall is worthy of a painting. Or perhaps a tragic wind blows away the fog to reveal the tower of a castle. It is through flashes like these that we can reconstitute the innocence and purity that the English are called to have when they are faithful. This English angelic innocence certainly was the substance of the early medieval English spirit, which gave many saints the church." End quote. So I'd like to just begin my remarks really in the soil, just saying a few things about the English landscape, um, because the topography of home plays a part in shaping a nation's character. And England is a country which is very, where that is very much the case, and it's a country of very gentle gradients, slow-moving rivers, long and well-drained valleys. The landscape isn't particularly epic or dramatic. It's uh, very homely. Almost every part of it can be crossed on foot or on horseback. There aren't the great natural obstacles that you would have 
in the new world, like the Rocky Mountains or the uh, or Death Valley. Um, so when the forests in England were tamed and cleared in medieval times and the land was cultivated, there, there emerged this, this web of very gradual transitions where the most prominent feature in the landscape was the, the church tower and nestled in the, in the valleys. Um, additionally, England has natural borders. Um, it can only really be invaded from the north, from Scotland. Um, and that informs the national psychology. The situation of a people who can defend their territory is very different to that of a people who are forced to often have to accept foreign occupation. For example, the nations of Central Europe, until recently, have been governed from Berlin under the Nazis or, or from Moscow. Uh, under the communists, and they were compelled to treat, for example, their own languages as these local eccentricities and to regard their local customs as having no legal authority and guarantee of survival. But the English haven't suffered this for almost, you know, a thousand years. So there is a genius loci, and this, what Dr. Plinio, I think, identified there was that England still has an enchanted landscape. It's enchanted in the same way that a human face is enchanted. And, there, and that is why the English have a love of their home. What uh, Joseph Pierce calls in one of my, in, in my interview with him on Vendee Radio, he called it a soul soil nexus, this deep love and familiarity of our land. And I uh, recently felt this when I visited um, an old uh, dissolved monastery in Dorset, which is God's own county, uh, uh, in a place called Abbotsbury, and um, you could sense a serenity, a tranquility, a peace there, a lingering grace from the time when the, the landscape was, was studded with monasteries, um, and perhaps an angelic presence there. Even, even in sad, secular, cold, dark, post-Protestant England, there, there was a lingering grace there. Uh, that's beautiful. It reminds me of my favorite line from Tolkien, which is the very last line of Lord of the Rings when Sam comes home. Uh, if you recall, he says, uh, I, I shouldn't say it because of uh, uh, if someone hasn't re read the Lord of the Rings, if you haven't read the Lord of the Rings, please go read it. But uh, it certainly reminds me of that. Um, so the tell us about, um, I, I guess, where do you want to go next? I mean, Catholic England, the origins of that. Just Yes, yeah, so well, I was just go going ahead. to... Yeah, I was going to just highlight how important the faith is to England. In fact, England is unimaginable without the faith. And I was going to just talk about this in, in an institutional sense. Um, I'm glad you brought up uh, Lord of the Rings and specifically Samwise Gamgee, because I was going to mention him as well um, a little bit later. Um, but just to say that the elemental pillars of the English constitution, crown, law and parliament, so that's in the temporal sphere, um, all stem from the Catholic faith. So there was no England until the 10th century, um, but they're gradually among the Saxon heptarchy. So there were seven Saxon kingdoms um, that would war among, among each other. But what they had in common um, from the time of the mission of St. Augustine of Canterbury, which was sent directly from Rome, it was a papal mission, which is unique. Um, they shared the Catholic faith and um, this led to a, a political integration as well, uh, slowly over time. Um, so by the 10th century, we get talk of Angle land, 
uh, in documentary uh, evidence. Um, but as I say, there was, an, there was an ecclesial England before this. There was a spiritual entity and a reality. And um, school children learn about the famous Synod of Whitby, which uh, St. Bede describes uh, in his ecclesiastical history, which took place in 665, um, which sort of regularized the Roman method of church administration over the, the old Chel uh, Celtic method. Um, but equally important, or perhaps even more so, was um, in 673, when St. Theodore of Tarsus, who was Archbishop of Canterbury, summoned all the bishops of those seven Saxon kingdoms uh, to the Council of Hartford, and he established common canons and church di disciplines. So despite the feuding that I mentioned, uh, the Mercians invading Northumbria, the men of Kent eyeing up the downlands of Sussex, the mass, the priesthood, the scriptures and the prayers were the same. So England was an ecclesial realm before it was a physical realm, and its spiritual identity predated its political existence. So um, there was a procession from the spiritual to the material that is analogous to the Annunciation. And we know that Our Lady was invited to conceive and that her consent predated the incarnation. She had the liberty to choose. And her choice is the single most critical act of any human being throughout history. Um, similarly, um, England has had, in a healthy sense, um, a preeminent respect and position for liberty in her laws, in her institutions, um, in those moments in history when she has stood for liberty. Um, and that's taken form in Magna Carta and the common law, where peace is guaranteed by the resolution of conflicts through talking about them uh, rather than killing for them, and in the chambers of parliament. Um, and in a sense, this is, th this is the best part of the English spirit, which was taken to America um, in a derivative but deficient form um, to take root there. Um, and the devil distorted that with, the, with the, the heresy and the ideology of liberalism, the exaggeration of, of human liberty. Um, yes. Hey, let, let me just uh, ask about because we talked about, you just mentioned Whitby. So let me bring up Ireland and the Celts, because we also observe the exact same thing happening in Ireland in terms of the spirituality predating the national reality, uh, because the Irish language, written language that is, developed out of Latin and uh, helped all these, these warring Celts as well become more of an Irish entity. Um, but obviously that brought them into conflict with England. And as I mentioned to you, I've always looked at England and Ireland or England and the Celts as a very similar thing to Rome and Greece, because the character of Rome, as Virgil expresses, is to rule and order and administrate. And the character of Greece is to provide the true good of the good and the beautiful philosophy, art, architecture, all sorts of things. And so there was this great synthesis of Greco-Roman civilization. But um, and the same thing seemed to be the case also in early Irish history, because Ireland was the jewel of Europe with culture and with uh, writing and philosophy and monastics and everything. But the relationship seems to have never been 
certainly not as fruitful uh, and not as synthesizing ever, perhaps in the history. I'm not sure if there's ever a time when the Anglos and the Celts really had a really strong working relationship. I don't know if I'm wrong about that, but um, can you speak at all to the relationship there between these different ethnicities and these different um, Christianities? Obviously, that goes into current controversies as well. Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, it's a really interesting comparison, um, a very mysterious relationship, very troubled over the centuries, no doubt. Um, well, I think that, uh, as you say, there was the, the Irish heroic age in world affairs when, um, for example, in the, the sixth and seventh centuries, the, the Celtic missions, the Hiberno-Scottish missions brought the faith to continental Europe. I, I went to uh, St. Gallen uh, Monastery in Switzerland and I was, was amazed to find that uh, it was actually founded, St. Gall was an Irishman. Uh, it was founded in the, the 700s and that's how deep into the uh, continent the, the Irish missionaries penetrated. So uh, truly incredible. Um, I think that sadly um, the, the, uh, the English um, domination of the Irish um, already was um, was advancing before the the uh, Protestant Revolution, um, and so that sort of healthy cross pollination, um, I think, was was sort of truncated, was limited. Um, you know, although very fruitful in the early centuries, the early mid Middle Ages, uh, sadly didn't didn't continue, didn't flourish. Um, in some ways. Um, so you have, you know, the Protestant ascendancy whereby the, um, the landlord class in, uh, in Ireland, the, the occupying class are Protestants and, and mistreat the, the, the native Irish people and uh, engender an, uh, an animosity which uh, endures to this day. Um, nevertheless, um, there have been um, some fruits, uh, Saint, uh, Pope Leo XIII refers to um, the, the fact that the British Empire has been a conduit for Irish missionaries to disperse throughout the globe. And this is really important. You know, the fact that, I mean, Australia is a bit of a basket case now, but in the middle of the 20th century, it was, it was a third Catholic. Um, and that's, that's largely, you know, through the efforts of Irish missionaries who had the, the protection um, and the, the safe passage guaranteed by the British Empire. So, you know, it, it might not have obviously been the, the intention of the British Empire, but there was nevertheless a kind of an aegis under which uh, the, the true faith could spread through, through Irish missionaries. Um, interestingly, I mean, this is sort of jumping around a little bit, but Irish bishops never, um, in the 19th century, for example, when the Irish question was just dominating British politics, um, the question of home rule, leading up to the Easter Rising, the Irish bishops never um, condemned British rule as tyrannical and um, uh, as, as something that the Irish would be justified in, in rising up against. They were always very aware that Irish um, nationalism or Irish you know, desires for independence was tainted by the French Revolution, and that any um, 
any kind of positivistic rationalist conception of Irish nationhood, of establishing Irish nation, was liable to be tainted by um, the, the kind of image, the romanticism of the French Revolution and then subsequently the springtime of the nations, yes. uh, the 1848 revolutions, the growth of nationalism across Europe. And you see this, for example, in Austria-Hungary, where um, you know, the Czech and the Bohemian nationalists are you know, gathering, for example, under the, um, they call it the, the Club of St. Uh, Wenceslas. So there is, a, there is an inspiration by Bohemia's Catholic past, but then it's tainted and it's, it's polluted with um with a, an instrumentalization of the faith which we see which you know we've uh, you, i think you've touched on in many programs which is the subordination of the spiritual to the temporal so seeing um the faith as lovable to the degree that it reflects the nation the the nation rather than seeing the nation as lovable to the degree that it reflects the true faith yes right so it's, it's a form of idolatry it yes. might not sound too serious, but it really is. Uh, this idea of national Catholicism. This is why, you know, Franco's regime, Salazar's regime, you know, as, as admirable as they were in many, many ways and far, far superior to our own uh, tyrannies that we live under at the moment, were not some kind of ideal um, because they did have this problem of this kind of subordination of the faith. So I think that's what the Irish bishops were, were concerned about at that time. Um, so yes, just a few of my thoughts there, really, a bit mixed, yeah. a bit jumbled. But I, I, a Certainly. question I'd like to get more into, and and I would note that um, uh, Sheed and Ward published a book called The Irish Way: Studies in Irish Sanctity, uh, uh, which yeah. I'd like to read, and I think that would that would provide uh, you know a bit more material to really get to grips with some of these questions. Yes, and before my Irish viewers uh, lose their heads over what was just said, I'm aware that the 1641 revolution was approved as a just war, but 1798 was not approved as a just war by the bishops of Ireland. And it's a lot more complex than we can really get into here. Obviously, the Irish question is uh, very near and dear to my heart as well. It's an American. We, we have a great love for the Irish over here in America. But uh, I, well, I, I, myself, I myself am a Flemish as this... Uh, flag may suggest so i i'm neither anglo nor uh, irish but uh, what were you gonna say well just that the the 1641 uprising was really a, a counter-revolution the confederate yes. counter-revolution because it was in in favor of the true king yes. um who was who uh, parliament revolting against um he obviously wasn't a catholic king he was uh he was preferable to the the more radical protestants of the uh the parliamentarian cause uh, but just to say that, you know, the, the Jacobite cause, which was, you know, popular in the, the, uh, the Celtic areas of the British Isles, uh, was a counter-revolutionary movement. Yes. Um, I, think, I think we can almost say that no revolution is ever good. I mean, that's why the yes. Irish were very careful Certainly. to call uh, the uprising an uprising uh, mm -hmm. in, in 1916. Why the Poles in the 19th century always called it an uprising mm. um, in line with, you know, Thomistic thought about the uh, justification of a people um, uh, overthrowing or resisting a tyrant. Yes, in order to restore the Christian order, not to create a exactly. different order. Uh, so, anyways, let's get back to our topic on England. Um, so, you so Catholic England begins before the nation of England, and you mentioned how the the three temporal pillars of English politics and temporal order are coming straight out of the Catholic Church. Um, and you wanted to talk on 
popular piety, some of the aspects of it. And you touched on Marian devotion. There's also the Our Lady's Dowry, um, that uh, name for England. Um, yeah, tell us more. Yes, well, I think in studying, you know, these, let's say, more more cultural um, uh, sort of uh, aspects, uh, they, they can seem more intangible. Um, but I think here is really where you see an expression of the English soul. Just like music in a particular epoch tells you something about what is going on in man's soul at that time, right? The, the storminess of Beethoven bespeaks the atmosphere of revolution uh, and nationalism of um, that time of tumult. Um, so when we look at the Middle Ages, England was at the center, at the heart of Catholic Europe, of Christendom. And it was a shared civilization of ceremony and spectacle, drama, ritual, display. Um, one of my favorite descriptions of the Middle Ages is of a forest of symbols. There was a fascination with uh, form and ritual, with pattern. These were seen as um, vestiges of the divine wisdom, as St. Bonaventure put it, establishing a series of correspondences that, that uh, mounted and ascended more and more closer to heaven, like a, a Gothic cathedral. Um, and foreign visitors, um, reported that the English were notable among the Christian nations for their piety. Uh, their their uh, anecdotal records speak of the uh, English rivaling the Romans in their love of ceremony and the Spanish in the devotion to the Virgin. The bells of the London churches deafened those who were unfamiliar with them. And one continental observer noted that the citizens all attend mass every day and say so many paternosters in public, the woman carrying large rosaries in their hands, um, end quote. And this was the dispensation and condition of England until the time of Henry VIII. There's been a notion going around, you often see it's a, it's a black legend basically, that this idea of the Middle Ages as an age of faith was false. It was, it was a sort of um, a, a control architecture of the elite and, and it, it didn't reach down into the the popular people is is a big fat lie um it's it, the the sheer weight of 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 all the evidence we have material archaeological devotional you know literature everything is all about the faith at That's, every level what a joke is, is, is that even being said by academics are people actually saying that yes there was something on twitter the other day where, where someone was posting a um, an interesting thesis about how Bolshevism sort of could only take root in an orthodox country. And they were talking about how the Russian peasants were, were never really truly Christian or there lingered a kind of um, desire for a great Khan among them, um, which, which ha may have an element of truth. But then they got into this idea that the age of faith was, was false, it's, uh, which is completely false to say that. Um, <laughs> that's like a, when that's they, like a joke. That's like not even... <laughs> I couldn't be believe yeah. any any academic could possibly assert something like that. Well, this is the vocation of the Catholic historian because these black legends get recycled. Mm -hmm. They get disproven at the academy. So, for example, the academy today is very influenced by um, um, the scholarship of um, Eamon Duffy, 
um, which has really um, sort of won the argument as regards the vitality and the popular piety in the English church uh, before the, the uh, Protestant revolution. Um, and has really said that, you know, this really was a, a popular religion and so on. Um, however, in the you know, next few decades, perhaps that will dissipate and then the black legends will return. I mean, the devil just keeps attacking. Uh, so we need to be vigilant to that. I mean, when the Mary Rose, the, the Henry VIII's warship was, was raised um, from the, the seabed in the channel, um, a, a number of uh, artifacts were found in uh, remarkable preservation under the, the silt. And, um, you know, there were a number of rosaries found. And the, these, this is a rare example of artifacts from common people, poor sailors, not from aristocrats or anything else. This is just, so among the poor people, their most prized possessions were their rosaries, were their crucifixes. Um, so um, in this time, there, there wasn't an aversion to things of the flesh, but an understanding of them as tokens of the divine order. This is the sacramental imagination, the, the, the enchanted universe of the Middle Ages. Um, for example, a prayer at the end of the mass celebrated God's blessing of our bread and our ale. Um, so uh, two things that are, are very dear to the English. Um, so the piety of the English was was by no means an austere or morbid piety. There's never been an English uh, Savonarola or an English Luther. Um, the English piety has always been sort of earthy in a sense, um, very incarnational. Um, and the devil twisted this. Um, so when Pelagius refused to countenance the orthodox belief that mankind had inherited the primal guilt of Adam and that original sin damned the world to perdition without the intervention of divine grace, when he, when he um, rejected that, he was in a sense a thoroughly English heretic. He was taking this, this good aspect of the primordial light of the English soul and exaggerating and twisting it. Um, so this, this devotion of the English in the Middle Ages tended not to be very lachrymose or penitential, what we can see from the manuals of prayer that have survived from this period is that they tended to invoke the incarnation rather than the passion. Um, and it's an aspect of what has been called English optimism, um, which is manifest, for example, in the, the statues outside Wells Cathedral. Well, there's, there's just a certain benevolence and, and sweetness to them. Um, and the, the English mystic, uh, Juliana of Norwich, uh, in her um, in her work on the revelation of divine intimacy, wrote that uh, famously, "All shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well," which is which is very characteristically English. Um, in the images of Spain and Italy, the Blessed Mother is is often seen as a figure in tears. Um, you know the uh, the the Virgo Dolorosa. Whereas in England, she is characteristically represented as the loving mother of the divine infant. Um, and similarly in English architecture and the English perpendicular Gothic, there's a, there's a simplicity, um, there is a straightforwardness, which is quite contrasted to the more ornamental and florid, um, flamboyant and rayonant Gothic, for example, at the same time, and then the later Baroque of, on the continent. Um, so I think that, you know, is an example of, of, a, of a, a difference there, which uh, was manifest in the uh, popular piety. Um, nevertheless, there has been, and there continues to this day, to be a, a love of pomp and ceremony among the English people. 
Um, England is one of the last places where the medieval forms of, uh, of monarchy and aristocracy um, survive to this day. And we still carry out the great processions and rituals and no one really knows why we do them. Um, but I think this is because of the English love of ritual. Um, interestingly, in the serum use of the rite, of the mass, um, which was, you know, most common in, in England in the Middle Ages, um, there was an elaborate splendour to the accompanying ceremonial, which was actually much more, um, much more splendid in that sense than the Roman practice at the time. Um, there were three, five, sometimes seven deacons and as many subdeacons, two or more thoroughfares, three cross bearers, um, which are sort of prescribed in, in the, the Serum Rite. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, the, it was very um, magnificent. Processions were very frequent. Um, and that was carried over, actually, incidentally, into the Dominican Rite, the, the love of processions. Um, Salisbury Cathedral is attached to a great cloister um, and that would be where the, the choir and the clergy would process on great feast days um, and uh, you know obviously processions is a, is a huge part of universal Catholic life um, but that liturgical action is obviously a reminder of the the fact that all of life is a pilgrimage towards Christ um, and that heaven itself is a is a procession um, so, and this was carried over into the streets, of course, um, in the ceremonies of Corpus Christi, when the Blessed Sacrament was carried down the principal streets with banners and crosses, wreathed in incense and attended by joyful chanters, the, the physical communion of the faithful was, in a sense, participating in the heavenly communion. Um, it was a social and cultural action. It was a liturgy of the streets. Um, like the mystery plays when the crucifix rather than the Eucharist was carried through the streets. And um, this is very much coming from the thought of St. Augustine of Hippo, who had said that religion in the, in the, uh, the urban centres demands an audience like that of a theatre, where, as he put it, a secret sympathy is shared. Um, so the English, the English loved ritual. Um, but they would enter into them in a spirit of, of sort of respectful flexibility with, and, you know, admitting there were variations, imperfections, mistakes. Um, the purpose was a, 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 to establish a right to be at ease. Um, that's how Sir Roger Scruton put it. Um, so the English didn't um, reject mystery, but they rejected a desire to kind of explain it, to rationalize it. Um, and, uh, to this day, there's an understanding that tradition, a far more tradition example, is far more reliable than abstract argument. That rituals and ceremonies exist without an explanation, um, and they they themselves contain truth of things incarnationally than an intellectual doctrine would. Um, I think this this attitude explains our spontaneous preference for monarchical over Republican government, um, and until recently for aristocratic titles over professional degrees. Well, that's very interesting. Um, and it, your description of English piety really goes at the um, angels at play, which is what St. Gregory the Great 
commented sort of prophetically about the Anglos that he saw in Rome when he sent St. August, Augustine of Canterbury. If, if viewers don't know that story. Um, yeah. If you want to talk about angels at play, and I just wanted to ask about our lady's dowry as a concept, and then we yeah. can go into Anglicanism. Great. Go okay. ahead. Yes. Just one last thing on the processions to talk about Christendom as a liturgical polity, as a sacramental organism. We can also talk about a Eucharistic geography. John Senior talked about how Christian civilization flows from our Lord's side on Calvary. Everything is about the mass, about protecting it, about facilitating it. And this is reflected in urban planning. To this day, if you go to Oxford, there are very narrow, they're quite narrow streets and then wide avenues that lead to each of the colleges. Um, I think I, I, I quoted in an interview with uh, with uh, Joseph Pierce, I can't remember, but I think there were about four colleges that were dedicated to Our Lady in, um, when Oxford was founded. But each of those colleges, the reason that it has wide avenues is because all of the students would come out of their lectures um, each day and they'd need that space so they could all get to the Blessed Sacrament between lectures, get to Holy Mass. That's why the avenues are wide. So the very, the very geography of Europe is is Eucharistic. Um, this is this is the the true English inheritance um, that we have. Um, so England is the dowry of Mary. First of all, what is a dowry? A dowry is normally understood as a gift that accompanies a woman on her marriage. Um, it's a transfer of wealth from her family to her and her husband on the occasion of their marriage. Um, but under English common law. A dowry was something quite different. Um, under English common law, a dowry was a gift from the husband to his wife on their marriage as a kind of security for her. So it was under her sole legal control, to, uh, which was unique in English common law, that, English, that a woman could hold property under her own name. Um, and the purpose was to, as a security, was to give her financial stability, financial means, should she become a widow. Um, and that's why we speak of dowagers, for example. So if anyone watches Downton Abbey, uh, you have the, the dowager, uh, I think it's the dowager countess of Grantham, but that, that it, it, it comes from the, you know, it's the same, same meaning as a, as a widower. Um, so if we say that England is Mary's dowry, Anglia dos Marie, what we're saying is that England is in a particular way dedicated to the Virgin Mary, it's given to her and it's her own inalienable possession. So it's a gift that's, that's never been rescinded. It cannot be rescinded. And um, very famously in, in the, the, um, the Wilton Diptych, which is the most sublime piece of um, English medieval art to survive, King Richard II is giving Mary, he's rededicating Mary to Our Lady. He's giving it to her as her dowry. Um, so this, this is uh, why this land has been particularly blessed um, by our Lord and Our Lady. Um, and periodically, England has been rededicated to Our Lady. Um, in 1893, after the, the second spring, during the second spring, the, the Catholic revival of the 19th century, and then also encouragingly in 2019. Um, so... Um, 
as uh, Pope Leo XIII said, when England returns to Walsingham, England will return to the Catholic faith. Um, so there are there are the smallest green shoots there um, of uh, of uh, restoration of recovery. I think so. the The origins of this this title of England as of uh, England as Anglia dos Marie, the as Our Lady's dowry, is sort of lost in the the mists of time. Um, one of the earliest piece of evidence we have is from an Anglo-Saxon ecclesiastic and historian, uh, Edmer, in 10, who lived from 1060 to 1124, so just after the Norman conquest. He wrote how the Norman Archbishop of Canterbury, the William the Conqueror, um, put in place, Lanfranc, suppressed the celebration of the Immaculate Conception, which had begun before the Norman conquest when England's king was a saint. Uh, he wrote, in, in former days it was celebrated, it, the, the, the Immaculate Conception, was celebrated more commonly than now, and by those chiefly in whom there dwelt a pure simplicity of soul and a humble devotion, and thus those in virtue of their position of authority did not scruple to abolish what the simple and perfect love of Our Lady had established, namely the feast of her conception, Having thus seen the mode of proceeding of the eminent persons who succeeded in doing away with the feast of the mother of God, let us cast a glance at the love of the simple folk who lament over the loss of so great a gladness. So the, the simple folk, among the simple folk, there was this great Marian devotion. Um, and um, in 1061, our Lady appeared to um, an Anglo-Saxon um, noblewoman um, called the Lady Rochelle's in the small village of Walsingham, and she instructed her to build a, a house, a holy house, a replica of the holy house of Nazareth, where the where the miracle of our redemption occurred, where the incarnation actually happened. Um, she instructed her to share her joy. The, the, the joy of the, you know, that we recognize, we, that, we, that we venerate, the joyful mystery of um, the Annunciation. And um, this, this, this site of Walsingham, 1061, uh, just five years before the Norman Conquest, it was almost, as Joseph Pierce described, it's like the supernova of the Anglo-Saxon um, civilization. When England's king was a saint, St. Edward the Confessor, it was the most bright moment just before um, the Norman invasion. Um, and there was a popular medieval po poem, which, which uh, was titled, As Ye Came From the Holy Land. But that Holy Land was referring not to the Holy Land of Palestine, but to the Holy Land of Walsingham. Walsingham was England's Nazareth, and it, was, it, 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 uh, it flourished to such an extent that it became one of the four greatest pilgrimage sites of medieval Christendom, which were Rome, Jerusalem, Santiago de Compostela, and Little Walsingham, which was unique among those four for being a shrine specifically to the Blessed Mother. So this is where I, the, the strength of England's Marian devotion was, was incarnate, was, was uh, I would say, uh, surpassed, uh, though the, 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 you know, among, was, was preeminent among all, all nations. Um, the, uh, in, in 1399, the Archbishop of Canterbury wrote, the contemplation of the great mystery of the incarnation has drawn all Christian nations to venerate her, 
from whom came the first beginnings of our redemption. But we English, being the servants of her special inheritance and her own dowry, as we are commonly called, ought to surpass others in the fervour of our praise and devotion. So I've mentioned how in the English devotion um, to the Immaculate Conception uh, was uh, was uh, preceded, was antecedent to, to many other nations. Uh, Spain, the, the veneration of the, the Immaculate Conception in Spain was, was also very early. Um, but it's in England that we find the first commemoration of St. Anne, Mary's mother, and the earliest evidence of the daily little office prayed in Mary's honour. Um, and the origins of the widely popular Marian miracle collections. And as a piece of empirical proof um, of the fervor of this Marian devotion, Joseph Pierce mentions, he did some research on the dedication of parish churches or local churches um, across Europe. And he found that um, England had the, the greatest density of churches devoted, dedicated to Our Lady. So that is, that is empirical proof there of the the strength of the marian devotion wow wow that's that's wonderful and obviously the the greatest medieval exponent of the doctrine of the immaculate conception is obviously the englishman dun scotus um and uh but you mentioned the norman conquest and if viewers don't know their english history that is when the normans who were normandy frenchmen basically they spoke a french some sort of old french they invaded England in 1066. There's this great, uh, the Bayou Tapestry, famous work of art from history that describes it. But this was this uh, somewhat of amalgamation, at least among the English elite between the French and the England. I, I know, I think the ruling, the ruling class in England spoke French for how many decades or centuries after this, I don't know. But um, can you speak a little bit on the relationship of the English soul to the French? Because obviously then that gets into a lot of our Anglo Anglo liberal history later. Yeah, this is um, uh, again, very, um, very mysterious. Um, the Norman conquest was quite savage in many ways. Um, and there remained the, in a sense, the divisions between the Anglo-Saxon folk and the Norman elite um, until this day, the, the, the outline of, of those divisions, in a sense, have, have remained with us. Nevertheless, of course, the integrating power of the Catholic faith um, brought these people together. There was, um, there was a complete um, replacement of the elite uh, by the Norman lords. I mean, William the Conqueror uh, stripped, I think, about 80 to 90 percent of the Anglo-Saxon nobility of their, their lands, their titles, um, to be replaced with his own, uh, his own Norman um, knights. And similarly, in the church, most uh, monasteries were, you know, the, the abbot was replaced and so on. So it was, a, it was a, a very sharp break in the national life. Um, and it took maybe until the Plantagenet dynasty um, in the 13th century for that, um, that tension to ease uh, and for the, the Norman elite to even start learning the English language uh, and to, to, to mix uh, you know, more harmoniously with the, their Anglo-Saxon subjects. Um, now, that, I mean, that's one reading of it. I, I think it can be exaggerated, as I say, that 
the, the fact that um, both Norman elites and Anglo-Saxon folk shared the, the, the faith and therefore um, shared uh, uh, the divine filiation um, is, is of you know, paramount importance. Uh, but um, that, that Norman, that they, there was a national devotion to, to the Marian piety. Um, and this led to the, the term Merry England, um, which was first uh, coined in 1150. So relatively soon after the, the conquest, um, Henry of, uh, sorry, the, the, the encyclopedist by Friar Bartholomus Anglicus wrote that England is a strong land and a sturdy and the plenteous corner of the world. England is full of mirth and of game and men oft times able to mirth and game, free men of heart and with tongue. Um, so, uh, there, there is a, a thesis, I think, um, that where you, whereby one can link the origins of, of sport and play, um, certainly with the recreations and pastimes of pre-modern rural people, people would, uh, would recreate on the feast days. Um, and it's these primordial forms of, of, uh, play that sports originate, um, and uh, although these feast days were tragically suppressed, um, we, we do have to this day um, the, the English um, preeminence in sport uh, worldwide. Uh, there was a, a scholar called D Tony Collins, um, who studies sort of sports history, said that Britain is no longer a serious world power. But one thing it can do is still is point to the fact that most of the country in the world still play British sports or sports that were derived from British sports. Um, so there is there um, a legacy of the empire. Um, and I think you can make a poetic case that, um, that Sir Roger Scruton certainly pursued when he said that with the good and the useful man is in is merely in earnest, but with the beautiful he plays. And uh, he said that the that when we play, when we dance, it's a continuation, an extension of the blessedness of our childhood into adult life. Um, so where it, where does this English genius for play comes from? I think it comes from this this angelic innocence, which is part of the English primordial light. Um, what do children do when they're under the benevolent gaze of their mother? They play. Um, That's beautiful. And, yes, well, Proverbs 8.30 says that, then I was by him as a nursling, and I was daily all delight, playing always before him, playing in his habitable earth, and my delights are with the sons of men. I think that's that's a side note. One of the ways that American culture is thoroughly English because we love sports in America as well. Um, but uh, before we uh, lose all of our time, um, we need to get into the dark, the dark, dark, dark period of English history, which is the period that we're still living through, which is the Anglican occupation of Catholic England. Um, and one of the interesting things that was noted i think i think it may have been in your broadcast with ryan grant but he mentioned how at the ascension of england or ascension of elizabeth I, english england was a catholic nation with a protestant minority but at the death of elizabeth 
it was a Protestant nation with a Catholic minority, and which he ascribed Grant ascribes to pretty much the most brutal, savage police state that existed at that time, the most psychologically manipulative um, uh, psychological warfare uh, through art and all sorts of things, the Virgin Queen to replace Our Lady, the suppression of all sorts of Catholic symbols and everything, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I can't help, I can't help but think, is there an angelic innocence that was viciously exploited? Is there sort of this sort of a weakness in the angelic innocence that was sort of gullible enough to go along with this insanity, you know, that was being imposed. I don't know. So tell us about the dark period that we're living through the Anglican occupation of Catholic England. Yeah. So everything you uh, related there from, from Ryan Grant, everything you mentioned, I think is all true um, regarding the, the savagery of the, uh, the repression of the true faith in England. Um, for nearly 300 years, that, that penal period. Um, I think really to answer that, I've got to say just a, a few things about English spirituality in the medieval period again, um, because I think you will see the qualities in the English character which the devil then exploited. Um, so I, I would just say that um, um, there is a strain of individualism within the English spirit. Um, so in a good sense, uh, in the Middle Ages, um, for example, hermits and anchorites were a very large part of English, uh, English life. Um, and there was a kind of distaste for regimentation or excessive display. Um, and uh, Robert of Bridlington famously wrote that priests ought also to plough, to sow, to reap, mow hay with a sickle and make a haystack. So, you know, some people call this a kind of via media of English spirituality. Um, William of Malmesbury, who was a foremost historian of the 12th century, said that best is ever meat. Uh, you could say moderation in all things. Um, and it is perhaps the reason for the relative lack of success for the Carthusians in England, uh, with their dedication to silence and penance, their austerity. Um, was perhaps a little bit too strict for the English spirit. Um, now, having said that, it would be wrong to suggest that English Catholicism was, was, was separate from it, European Catholicism. The great monastic orders, the Benedictines, the Cistercians flourished all over England. Um, and uh, the Dominican Franciscan friars wrote in Latin for a European community of scholars. Obviously, there is a universality of Christendom, a kind of breathing of Rome to the world and the world to Rome. Um, but it would be, I think, correct to say that in England, there's been, there hasn't been a tradition of, um, of theological speculation in the, in the manner of a St. Thomas Aquinas or a St. Augustine of Hippo. Um, the nearest equivalent to the great Summa are short handbooks of English uh, for English contemplatives or anchorites, um, and they're directed towards individuals. Uh, they're concerned with the exigencies of the solitary life, instruments for personal direction. Um, so they're intensely English. They're unimpeachably orthodox, but they're also slightly individual, individually focused. Um, so the English aptitude is, is disaffected from abstract speculation. Um, 
And I would, and just again, there's this this long preamble to to the getting onto Anglicanism. Um, there is a sweetness in English spirituality. Uh, to go back to Juliana of Norwich, the lineaments of her piety have been traced to European spiritual mentors such as Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, Saint Catherine of Siena. Um, but Juliana expresses the English spiritual tradition in a particular way, um, which is which which is natively cheerful and rooted in common sense. Um, she doesn't work in tight juridical categories of scholastic moral theology or express the more penitential rigors of the Franciscans. Her methods are really practical and her metaphors are pragmatic. She says that the penitent must labor as does the gardener, delving and diking, swinking and sweeten and turn the earth upside down. That was uh, my, my Middle English rendition there. Um, and uh, the, the English seem to like this, this metaphor of the garden. Um, Bishop Challoner uh, published a manual of spiritual exercises, which was incredibly popular, called The Garden of the Soul in 1740. Uh, he published seven editions in 17 years. And um, English Catholics were known afterwards by the term Garden of the Soul Catholics. That was used to distinguish hereditary Catholics from later converts. It was that popular. Um, and I think, you know, this passion for gardening, just as a, as, as a digression, was, was a, you know, remains a great one among English. Um, and Tolkien was picking up on that with uh, the character of Sam Gamgee. He's saying something there about gardening. Sam Gamgee is the only non-aristocrat among the, the fellowship, the Nine Walkers. Uh, um, and in a sense, his, his character arc is the, is the most noble. He, he undergoes the most changes um through the quest and he he ends uh the quest from being frodo's social inferior to being his social equal um and i think tolkien is saying something there about how um intending a garden gardening tenderizes the soul it, it roots it in humility humus meaning soil uh, it's sam's humility that that predisposes him to the heroic virtue that he shows. Um, so in, in uh, the 12th century, one of the first prose works in this Middle English is known as the Ancrene Rule or the Ancrene uh, Wissa, which is a manual for three female recluses who are going to live in cells a few miles from Wigmore Abbey in Hertfordshire. And um, I didn't know this, Tim, I, it'd be interesting if you knew, but female recluses uh, these anchorites were considered to be no longer of the world and they actually had the mass of the dead celebrated before the anchorite would uh, led it was led in procession to her cell and uh, they would have all the ceremonies of the burial office performed including the scattering of the earth oh wow. um yeah oh and she would then <laughs> she would then lie prostrate upon her her bier like a you know oh, like wow. a corpse before being pronounced dead to the world wow so yeah these uh you know the, the, these medievals they really believed um and uh the ancrene vis wisser was a was a moderate and gentle text it was filled with this sweetness which has always been characteristic of english spirituality um for example there is an account of a child being comforted when his parent whips the object that hurt him and of the way a man will tie a knot in his belt to remind him of a service he promised to perform. And this is a day before personal watches and so on. Um, there's a moderation in the penitential exercises. 
the law of love is more important than the rigor of the penance. And the reader must pray, but he also must eat and dress properly. So there's a there's a shrewdness, there's a there's a practicality. Um, now to go on to to Anglicanism, this this Christ haunted uh, heresy. Um, it's been described as an English settlement. So it's this bad side of the instinct for moderation. It's an attempt for to, for, uh, to establish peace at all costs. So although there was this severe coercion repression of the Anglican state, in a sense, it was accepted by the people. It had to have been for God to, in a sense, punish England with Anglicanism. Um, so although there was heroic recusancy among the bulk of the population, there wasn't enough resistance because there was this desire for moderation, this middle way between Puritanism and what was seen as paper, papist, papism, you know? Um, and uh, for Anglicans, you know, what characterizes Anglicanism, as Dr. Plinio said, it's, it's less the clarity and certainty of the true faith, but it, that over, uh, but to be replaced by a simulation of this kind of shared experience, this 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 supposed experience of sanctity, um, and it, even to you know that and that's led over the centuries to an, an embarrassment in everything that regards religion, uh, in discussing anything that regards religion. And you Americans have inherited this. Um, the very topic of religion is is embarrassing. It's it's unmentionable, uh, just like sex or love or, or hygiene, you know, um, which is not the case uh, in European. Uh, cultures um, you know so um, this is a point Dr Alan Fimister made he said that you know since the natural law is written on man's heart there is a guilt about the steady and inexorable apostasy of the English from Christianity in the last 500 years and this is where the devil's been so clever because Anglicanism was an effective sort of palliative to the subconscious guilt in the English psyche. It was a way to maintain some Catholic forms without truly believing in any of them. So you have a, a kind of parody of the mystery of the true faith wafting around the Anglican table, the Cranmer table, combined with this Protestant call to duty, which resounds in the hymns. Um, but it's, it's empty of all true meaning uh, and, and, and true, uh, of course, the, the true the true sacraments, um, absent baptism. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's very sad. Um, it's an example of a slow motion revolution. Um, I think the other thing about it is that, as with all um, all heretical Christianities that break away from the true faith, it becomes subordinate to the temporal power. Um, so you have that famous Bible, English language Bible that Henry VIII printed with the first cover uh, woodcut uh, of Henry VIII towering over the people and a tiny figure of Christ at his feet, um, which is an incredibly vivid uh, depiction of this, this idea that the king would, would not only be the Lord of uh, the people's bodies, but also the Lord of their souls. Um, and uh, that the, uh, this is where the absolute, the idea of the absolute monarchy comes in. The, yeah, the real beginning of theocracy. Right, exactly. It is an Anglican theocracy. Um, and uh, 
Scruton, who was actually an Anglican uh, in a sense, uh, he described, he put it very well. He said, quote, the English, the Christian faith has been melted down by history and recast in this peculiar ornamental form. The result was a revelation, not of God only, but of God's chosen people as the English with shy but implacable determination assumed themselves to be. And um, I think, and I, well, I would say, obviously it wasn't history just unfolding in a Hegelian sense. Uh, no, this was the revolution, which is the action of the fallen angels in history, working through revolutionary agents, um, their particular uh, revolutionary leaders like uh, the villain Henry VIII and, and various others, Thomas Cromwell and uh, Francis Bacon, Elizabeth Berlin and all these other, these other villains. Um, and it was planned, it was coordinated. Uh, it's not just history unfolding. Um, and uh, David Starkey, the English historian, interestingly, he, he described Anglicanism as a form of English Shinto. So when you go into an Anglican church today, you, 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 you see more regimental flags than you do um, uh, images of the saints or images of our Lord. So what he said, what are the English doing in these churches? They're actually worshipping themselves. Like Americanism, it is this, it's, an, it's a national form of Christianity, quote unquote, um, which now is crumbling because this, this that Anglican consensus, the Anglican settlement, quote unquote, has, has now broken down uh, as a result of various solvents, various um, currents that are subterranean within the revolution itself. Um, so I don't know if there was anything there. That yeah, that's, that's excellent. I think, I think what we need to do is we need to have a, another show all about the poisoning of the English soul, because there's so much to talk about with Anglicanism, liberalism, everything, Americanism, obviously. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you about, I guess, in closing, why don't we just close it out by talking about the Catholic revival? I think what's what was very fascinating to me is what you when you first brought up to me the Passionist uh, uh, St. Paul of the Cross. I, I never knew that until you told me that. And it's very interesting, I, I think, too, because I've gotten so much into the Passionist spirituality. Um, it is obviously all about the passion, not the incarnation, as it was previously. And initially, I thought that the passionate spirituality was so per, per, perhaps suited towards England in some way because of the great um, economy of feminacy that had, had been corrupting so much of Ang English society and Ang the British Empire. Um, but yeah, so tell us a little bit about um, the revival in the 19th century, the passionate order, um, English Catholic identity. Yes, well, earlier I remarked on how um, English spirituality had tended to um, centre on um, the incarnation, and that's uh, very much instantiated with the Shrine of Walsingham. Now, that is not, uh, I would emphasise, to the exclusion, of course, of, of the passion, of the, the Pascal mystery, of the, the, the redemption, the atonement. Um, the mystery plays, uh, the passion plays were incredibly popular, uh, very, very important as part of English Catholic life. Um, nevertheless, I think that when a nation 
returns from apostasy, or at least some part of the nation returns from apostasy, there is um, a quite, um, there's a natural uh, sense of, of making reparation, um, which God willing, if there is uh, a restoration of Christendom and an end to um, this, this catastrophe of modernity, I think there's going to be a lot of sackcloth and ashes, and I think there should be. Um, we've, there's a lot of reparation that needs to be done. Um, so this uh, mysterious, um, this, this tale, this, this, this story of passionist spirituality and its, its uh, interaction with the Catholic revival of the 19th century is, is beautiful. It's, it's, uh, it's a manifestation of the economy of grace. Um, it, it begins with um, St. Paul of the Cross. He was one of the great saints of the 18th century. Um, his devotion, um, though he never visited England, he had a, a mystical devotion to the, the cause of England's reconversion um, throughout his whole life. He said uh, in his old age, it is now 50 years since I began to pray unceasingly for the conversion of England to the faith of its fathers. And um, he'd mentioned England in his diary um, in a uh, in relation to a um, an entry in 1720 when he was young, he said that quote I had the special desire on a retreat for the conversion of heretics and especially of England, excuse me, with its neighbouring kingdoms, and I made a special prayer for the for this during most holy communion. And then three days later he wrote, and I had special motion to pray for the conversion of England, especially since I would. Have would that the standard of the faith be exalted, that devotion and respect, homage and frequent adoration in the most blessed sacrament, the ineffable mystery of the most holy love of God might be extended so that his holy name might be glorified in a special manner. The desire to die as a martyr, especially for the blessed sacrament, there, there where they do not believe in it, never leaves me. So, end quote, that it was that God was calling to Paul he would he would spend his whole life praying for the return of Mary's dowry, um, and uh, I think this is really important to the story of um, Blessed uh, Dominic Barbary's um, mission to England uh, in the early nineteenth century. Um, it was uh, he was certainly familiar with uh, Blessed Vincent Stramby's Life of Saint Paul of the Cross. Um, where Stramby says that England was always the country of St. Paul's uh, predilection. It might also seem to some who knew him well as if he had no heart, no feeling, but for England. All, England was always in his thoughts. England was constantly subject of his discourses. England was always before him in his prayers. He prayed for England without intermission. Um, so I, I, would, I would say that in the economy of graces, mysteriously in history, these prayers and exhortations bore fruit. Um, and uh, we haven't seen the glorious conversion of the English, um, but we have had the consolation of the, the second spring of the 19th century, the, the Catholic breath of the 19th century, uh, the leaven um, that followed, that really begins with um, this very small uh, bedraggled, it, it was raining, uh, Italian, priest, uh, uh, Father Dominic Barbary, this passionist priest, knocking on the, the college door of um, Littlemore in Oxford um, and being received by 
um, John Henry Newman, who was uh, an Anglican, an Anglo-Catholic uh, uh, at that time. And uh, this was the, the moment he'd been studying uh, patrology and, and scripture and more and more convinced of the, the uh, apostolicity of the uh, Roman Catholic Church and uh, of the, um, the rupture of uh, the Anglican communion. And uh, he, was, he was hesitating when he received this knock on his door at the dead of night. And uh, the next morning he asked to be received into the, the Catholic faith, which then initiated a whole cascading um, series of graces, um, you know, with, with uh, Catholicism in this country uh, doing, uh, you know, being, being uh, very successful, as I say, in, in sort of breathing a Catholic spirit uh, into that era. Um, and uh, we have a prayer uh, that um, the congregation of the Passionists would pray uh, that said, uh, God who willed to make use of Paul and his congregation for the conversion of England, put before him the sad condition of that country and incited him to pray for it. It is lawful to infer from this that St. Paul the Cross had a special mission to occupy himself with the return of England to the church. Um, and uh, the, the, uh, the son of St. Paul, uh, Father Dominic, was called by Cardinal Manning an apostle to England. Um, so he had a great call to, the, to the, call of, the cause of England's conversion. It wasn't by chance. Um, and I think that uh, the introduction of, uh, or the, let's say, the, the, the emphasis on passionate spirituality in the 19th century as a means of reparation, as a means of, of considering the consequences of sin, uh, which is written on our Lord's body, devotion to the five wounds, for example, devotion to the sacred hearts, which is uh, bound up with the, the political vision that the, the, the church has for the conversion, the, the conforming of the entirety of temporal society to, uh, to our Lord. This is, all, this is all wrapped up in this, uh, this, the, this passionist strand in the, the second spring of the 19th century that's beautiful there's so much more i'd like to talk about but uh we've gone on uh need to wrap it up um get back to my family is who's sick uh, but any final thoughts you'd like to say before we close out english catholic soul the english soul no, it's been a, it's been a great pleasure um to to uh Dis discuss the uh, English English soul, and um, I've, I've got plenty more to uh, of notes to uh, to perhaps present at another time, um, particularly on um, some of those noxious English trends such as pragmatism, empiricism, liberalism. Um, but those pathologies um, will be healed through the return of England to the Catholic faith, um, and I've mentioned the role and importance of joy as a pervasive attitude in English spirituality, uh, which is rooted in Our Lady's invitation to the Lady Rochelle's to share my joy. And I would say to, to any Anglican listeners um, that, that Christianity has, uh, has it, uh, the shape of Christianity is, is Eucharistic, it's ecclesial, and it's Marian. And when it, when it lacks those shapes it, it it falls apart um 
And I think today, English Catholics are coming to remember their past. They're, remem they're remembering that to be English is to be Catholic and it is to be devoted to Our Lady, the Mother of God. And the Shrine of Walsingham is, of course, at the heart of this. Excellent. Thank you so much, Peter. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, yes, but we'll, we'll later get into the American-ism of the English poison, uh, but also the English good. Uh, good things in America as well from England. Um, so let's uh, end with a pater noster and uh, offer up, of course, for the conversion of England through the intercession of St. Paul of the Cross. Nomine Patris, Fili, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Pater noster, quies angelis, sanctificetur nomen tuum, adveniat regnum tuum, fia voluntas tua, sicut in cielo et in terra. Panam nostrum quotidianum da nobis hodie, et imita nobis debita nostra. Sicre nostimitimus debitoribus nostris, ne nos inducas in tentationem, se libera nos malo. Amen. In nomine Patris, et Fidi, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Amen.